I don't know about you, Miss Kitty, but I feel so much yummier. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we are here to talk about some Christmas horror adjacency. Very adjacent in some cases. That's right. And we're kicking off with Batman Returns. Which I feel like is horror adjacent. Yes. Not even like twice removed, it's horror adjacent. And certainly in 1992 it was, Mm -hmm. based on some of the feedback they were getting from BAMs across America. That's right. People were unhappy with how raunchy this movie was well we're gonna get into that good that's right we have things to talk about so batman returns is a 1992 american superhero film directed by tim burton and written by daniel waters the film is a sequel to burton's wildly successful batman released in 1989 the plot focuses on the vigilante hero squaring off against corporate tycoon max shrek and the deformed crime boss penguin all while catching feelings for Selena Kyle and her mysterious alter ego, Catwoman. Meow. The stacked cast features Michael Keaton, Danny DeVito, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, alongside a myriad of amazing supporting cast members. Danny Elfman returned to compose the film's score. Burton had no intention of developing a sequel to his original film, believing that he would be creatively restricted by Warner Brothers. He agreed to return after securing creative control and bringing in Waters to write the script, which would focus heavily on character development rather than overarching plot points. All right, listeners. We don't know about you, but we're feeling much yummier. This is Batman Returns. From the sewers of Gotham, a new villain emerges. You didn't invite me, so I crashed! From the rooftops of Gotham, the perfect enemy comes to life. save this city is a creature of the night. Hey, stud. I thought we had something together. We do. While she craves a romance she can sink her claws into. You're getting into a girl. He plots a foul reign of destruction. My dear penguins, thanks to Batman, the time has come to punish all of Gotham! 
Gotham looms its greatest hero. Get ready for this one, because I'm very proud of the synopsis. Great. Strap yourself in. Okay. Decades ago, on a dark and stormy winter's night, two wealthy socialites, dismayed at the birth of their malformed and feral son Oswald Cobblepot, yeet the infant into the Gotham City sewers, ignoring the red balloons floating beside the shitty pissy water. (laughs) 33 years later, during the Chris Mahonda (laughs) Quonset... 33 years later, during the Chris Mahonda... I can't... 33 years later, during the Chris Mahonda (laughs) Quonsica... Is it close enough? Yeah. (laughs) Season. Wealthy industrialist and general bastard, Max Shrek, played by Christopher Walken, is abducted by the Red Triangle Gang, a group of mysterious, gun-and-poodle-wielding carny freaks and brought to their hideout deep within the Arctic exhibit in the derelict and dilapidated Gotham Zoo. The Red Triangle's leader, the Penguin, played by Danny DeVito, reveals himself to Shrek and blackmails him with evidence of his corporate corruption and murderous acts in order to gain his assistance in reintegrating the Penguin into society, and possibly even Gotham's social elite. Shrek, seeing an opportunity to use the penguin for his own political machinations, orchestrates a staged kidnapping attempt of the mayor's infant child, allowing the penguin to rescue it and become a sensationalized public hero. With his newfound celebrity, Penguin requests access to the city's birth records to learn his true identity. Meanwhile, Shrek's mousy secretary, Selina, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, bumbles into his secure files in an attempt to score some points preparing for his meeting with Bruce Wayne about his power plant ideas, which she finds out is a power plant in name only, and will actually suck the ever-loving shit out of Gotham's power, selling it back to the city at the whims of that skeezy bastard, Shrek. Realizing that his spineless secretary, Selina, knows the truth, Shrek attempts to kill her by yeeting... (laughs) By yeeting... (laughs) That word is so stupid. (laughs) By yeeting her out of his high-rise office window, Selena miraculously survives, but only after being licked and harried <laughs> by Mr. Mustafeles <laughs> and the gang. <laughs> Magical Mr. Mustafeles. Yeet. She eventually returns home in a daze, and after being triggered by an answering machine recording attempting to sell perfume to her so she can impress her boss, she has a psychotic break, flies into a righteous fury, and angrily crafts a sexy kitty costume. Hey, we've all been there. And calls herself Catwoman. Hear her roar. She returns to work confident and aggressive, feigning amnesia of her own attempted murder by Shrek, and manages to get a rise out of a visiting billionaire Bruce Wayne. Literally. As Batman, Michael Keaton, Wayne investigates the Penguin, suspecting that he is connected to the Red Triangle Gang. But the Penguin is now Oswald Cobblepot, the tragic son of his now-perished parents. Shrek convinces Oswald to run for mayor in order to eliminate opposition to his puerile power plant and discredit the current mayor by having the Red Triangle Gang wreak havoc throughout Gotham. Batman's efforts to stop the gang leaves a long trail of carny blood, 
and eventually brings him into conflict with Catwoman, who's teamed up with the Penguin to get Batman out of the way so she can pursue her own anti-Shrek shenanigans. Meanwhile, Selina and Bruce begin dating somehow, mayhaps recognizing the psycho in one another. On the night of the city's Christmas tree lighting, Penguin and Catwoman kidnap the Ice Princess, Gotham's own brainless beauty queen, while she's eating a big, stinky burger. <laughs> and, <laughs> and lure Batman to the roof above the ceremony. Penguin pushes the Ice Princess to her death with a swarm of bats, framing Batman, who stupidly stands on the high ledge above, staring down at her corpse for all to see. <laughs> The big, stinky corpse. <laughs> Batman escapes into the Batmobile, unaware that the Red Triangle Gang has modified it, allowing Penguin to take it on a remote-controlled rampage. Before regaining control, Batman records the Penguin's derogatory tirade against Gotham's citizens. He plays the audio at Oswald's mayoral rally the following day, ruining his image and forcing him to retreat back to the Gotham Zoo, where he belongs. Penguin forsakes his humanity, initiating his plan to abduct and kill Gotham's firstborn sons to avenge his own abandonment, the real reason he needed Gotham's birth records. Meanwhile, Selina plans to kill Shrek at his Christmas charity ball, but Bruce intervenes as they inadvertently discover each other's secret identities, again recognizing the whack job in each other. Suddenly, Penguin crashes the event with his giant dick. Duck. <laughs> and attempts to kidnap Shrek's son Chip, but Shrek offers himself instead. Batman neutralizes the Red Triangle and stops the kidnapping of Gotham's firstborn sons, forcing Penguin into a desperate corner, where, somehow, his only possible option is to deploy his missile-equipped Penguin army to destroy Gotham. <laughs> Batman's butler, Alfred Pennyworth, overrides the Penguins' control signal from the Batcave and redirects them back to Gotham Zoo. As the missiles destroy the zoo, Batman unleashes a swarm of bats he was keeping under his cape causing Penguin to fall into the contaminated waters of the Arctic exhibit, where he belongs. <laughs> Meanwhile, Quint, Brody, and Hooper set out on Quint's boat, the Orca, to hunt the Penguin. <laughs> While Brody lays down a chum line, Quint waits for an opportunity to hook the Penguin. <laughs> I'm just... After the line is tied to the stern, Quint prepares to sever the line. To prevent the transom from being pulled out, but the cleats break off. <laughs> oh my fucking god, I'm having some sort of flashback. Revenge. <laughs> Shit. Catwoman arrives to kill Shrek, rejecting Batman's plea to abandon her vengeance and leave with him to form a normal life. She's shot four times by Shrek, seemingly without effect, because she claims to have two of her nine lives remaining. Catwoman electrocutes Shrek with a taser and nearby exposed wires, causing a power surge that no human could survive. However, Batman only finds Shrek's charred, muppety remains. Drink. Penguin rises from the water only to die of his injuries before he can attack Batman and is laid to rest by his penguins in the toxic water, where he belongs. Sometime later, while Alfred drives him home, Wayne sees Selina's silhouette, but only finds a black pussy, <laughs> which he takes with him. The bat signal shines above the city as Catwoman looks on. The End
of that one. <laughs> 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 I deserve that. <laughs> I almost read it. Sever the line. <laughs> okay, that was a good synopsis. Kudos, sir. Thank you. Batman Returns was released on June 19th, 1992 on over 2,600 screens following a huge marketing campaign attempting to replicate the success of the original film. It earned nearly $46 million opening weekend, securing the number one spot at the box office, which I believe was a record at the time. Yep. Other notable films in the top ten that weekend included Sister Act, Alien 3, and Basic Instinct. So the only horror movie in that list that we haven't covered yet is Sister Act. That's true. We'll have to cover it someday. That's right. (laughs) While Batman Returns would ultimately fail to reach the levels of success and longevity of its 1989 predecessor, it would still prove to be a financially viable film for Warner Brothers. Despite the backlash from parents about the darker, more violent, and sexual themes presented. Ultimately, the film would earn $266 million worldwide against a reported budget of 50 to $80 million. Oh, only a 330% <laughs> return. Sad. That's sad. <laughs> Give me a break. Batman Returns. Brody Returns. To sever the line. Batman Returns holds an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh, with an audience score at 73%. The site's consensus reads, Director Tim Burton's dark, brooding atmosphere, Michael Keaton's work as the tormented hero, and the flawless casting of Danny DeVito as the Penguin, and Christopher Walken as well, Christopher Walken, make the sequel better than the first. Uh, fuck that consensus for not including mentioning Michelle, Michelle fucking Pfeiffer. I know. When I was writing this, like I pulled up Rotten Tomatoes to get the consensus. I was typing it out and I was just like, why is Michelle Pfeiffer's name not in this fucking consensus? For real. Sexism. I mean, she's better than every other. We're going to get into it. We, we are going to get into it because there's like, we're not the only ones. There's documented like listing and prioritization and placement of these icons that come out of this movie. And uh, she's at the top. Mm hmm. Agreed. And audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of B. The film had a polarized reception from professional critics. Several reviewers compared Batman Returns and Batman. Some suggested that the sequel had faster pacing and more comedy and depth, avoiding Batman's dourness and tedium. Critics generally agreed that Burton's creative control made Batman Returns a more personal work than Batman, something fearlessly different, which could be judged on its own merits. I would agree with that. It's much more of a Burton film. It is. Yeah. Critics such as Kenneth Turin, however, said that Burton's innovative, impressive visuals made Batman Returns feel cheerless, claustrophobic, and unexciting, which were often emphasized at the expense of plot. And according to Owen Gleiberman, Burton's fantastic elements were undermined because he did not establish a base of normality. Tim Burton doesn't have to have a base of normality. He's Tim Burton. He doesn't have a base of normality. He is his base of... (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Pfeiffer received near-unanimous praise for the film's standout performances as a passionate, sexy, ambitious, intelligent, intimidating, and fierce embodiment of feminism who offered the only respite from the otherwise dark tone. 
Jonathan Rosebaum, however, said that she did not live up to Nicholson's Joker. Okay. Mm. Mm. Kenneth Turin called the scenes shared by Batman and Catwoman the film's most interesting, and Peter Travers said that when they take off their masks at the end, they look, quote, lost and touchingly human, end quote. Ty Burr described the ballroom scene in which they realize each other's secret identities as more emotional than anything in Batman. Ebert noted that their sexual tension seemed to have been undercut for a younger audience. I don't think so. Oh, what? No, Roger. <laughs> what movie was he watching? He was watching softcore porn right before this movie. <laughs> he was just like, oh, this is nothing compared to watch five minutes ago. I mean, shit. <laughs> Maybe he just watched Basic Instinct right before. <laughs> <laughs> Likely. <laughs> Walken's performance was described as wonderfully debonair, funny and engaging, a villain who could have carried Batman Returns alone. Calm down. For real. In the years since its release, Batman Returns has been positively reappraised. It's now regarded as among the best superhero films ever made, one of the best sequels, and one of the best Batman films made. In fact, Screen Rant called it the best Batman film of the 20th century. And in 2018, GamesRadar Plus named it the best Batman film. Of course, this was before The Batman came out this year. Batman Returns was number 401 on Empire's 2008 list of 500 greatest movies of all time. Didn't see that coming. Oof. And uh, I wanted to, to add here that Matt Reeves, uh, of course, director of 2022's The Batman and, and Robert Pattinson, who played Batman in that movie, both listed it as their favorite Batman film. It was a really, really good movie, too. I really enjoyed the shit out of that. Oh, that was probably uh, my, yeah. my favorite. Well, that's like Batman a film with a capital F. Yeah, yeah. This is like a, yeah. This is a popcorn film. That was a piece of cinema. Yeah. Um, it does have some accolades, though. Um, at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Visual Effects and Best Makeup. At the BAFTAs, it was nominated for Best Visual Effects and Best Makeup as well. Oh. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, Best Supporting Actor, Danny DeVito, Best Director, and Best Costumes. And it won Best Makeup. Okay. And at the Razzies, it was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor for Danny DeVito, which why? I mean, two sides to a coin, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, why in the world wasn't Michelle Pfeiffer nominated for a Saturn Award? I do not know. Stupid. Yeah. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I'm going to open up this truly so we can truly start this conversation. So talking a little bit about the development and how this film came to be, obviously is from the success of Batman from 1989, Correct. which was at the time the fifth highest grossing film of all time. Right. It just went gangbusters. And so a sequel was considered inevitable and Warner Brothers Pictures had confidence in its potential and was discussing sequel ideas by late 1989 when Batman, I believe, came out in like June or something. So and it intended to begin filming the following May 1990. Do you remember when Batman came out in 1989? Yeah, I remember the commercials. Yeah, that was a big fucking deal. Like that movie made a lot of money. It seemed like it played all summer long. Like Batman was just inescapable i was i think it was too young for my parents to take me to, to see that i would really wanted to see it but we didn't i don't think we I saw, saw it on home video i did see i think um, batman returns in the I, theater i also saw batman returns in the theater yes yeah. and i definitely remember that i was like the perfect age for that yeah i mean obviously i mean i was like 12 or 13 when batman returns came out it's a little yeah. older you know but yeah, i was um, 10 yeah thank you uh <laughs> But yeah, I vividly remember seeing Batman in the theater and loving it, right? The only thing that I didn't love about the original Batman, and this is way off topic already, but um, the fucking soundtrack by, by Prince was weirdly 
out of place to me. I don't know. That's a, t- that's a different conversation. Yeah. Entirely. And even when I was a kid, I thought it was weird music to have in the movie. Yeah. It was all Prince. It's all grown on Prince. me like some sort of cancer, but. <laughs> but I like it. But you know, eventually we might have to deep dive the original Batman. Probably. We're doing right. this way out of order, but this is a better movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it depends on your perspective. They're different in different ways, you know? The studio had purchased the $2 million Gotham sets at Pinewood Studios in England because the first movie was filmed in England mm-hmm. for, you know, because they wanted it for at least two sequels and it kept the sets under 24 hour guard because it was cheaper to maintain the existing sets than build new ones. <laughs> well, I can imagine that seems like a really big set. Well, yeah, the, the artwork for mm-hmm. all of those was amazing. It was so super Gothic and dark. It's very art. And that first, and I still love watching these movies just for like looking at Gotham. Right? I mean, at the very, very least there's a, there's a burden aesthetic. To, to this and, and even, the original even more in yeah. batman returns right yeah. because he had more creative control mm-hmm. right and so basically they took all of his designs in batman and then like made them joyless and then like added a lot more of his like weird like nuance crazy you know whimsy that that he has mm-hmm. and included it in batman returns i think but uh back then robin williams and danny devito were considered to play uh riddler and penguin respectively i can see robin williams playing riddler so there was a lot of talk about that. In fact, Danny DeVito said that he had heard and, and seen in the papers that he was going to be cast as the Penguin a year before he actually got the offer. Really? Yeah, a full year. Of well, seeing that he was the the preferential cast from the studio and everything else and never had talked with anyone until a full year after that news was actively in the in the media. Well, I hope he took that time to prepare his character. Yeah, well, he did, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, so the studio actually wanted Two-Face to expand Billy D. Williams' role as Harvey Dent. Because they thought that that was the next biggest, you know, rogues gallery enemy uh, for Batman after the Joker. Really? Yeah. Do you agree with that? Uh, after Joker, it could be any number of people taking that. It could be, and it depends on the decade that you're thinking of. You know, it could be Scarecrow. It could be Killer Croc. It could be uh, the Iceman guy, Mr. Freeze, Red Hood. I mean, it could be Bane. Uh, certainly in the 90s was the biggest, one of the biggest, you know. I mean, but if you're thinking... <clears throat> like like classic rogues gallery right from like the really kitschy 60s tv show right the adam west show like i w- i would not put well, two-face, two-face probably wasn't i would say he wasn't even in that penguin and riddler penguin uh, riddler catwoman. joker catwoman yeah so i mean but I, in like the, the 90s animated cartoon <clears throat> which well, yeah. probably wasn't until after batman returns it's about sub-zero and then like mask of phantasm and stuff like that yeah yeah like, uh yeah and like you had poison ivy and you had harley quinn which was actually invented on the animated show not on the comics but I, I still wouldn't put i don't know i'm just making a big deal about this i just don't think that two-face is the the next biggest villain after the joker the joker obviously is batman's number yeah, one villain, we agree right? it's, but, yeah at the end of the day it's very debatable but joker yeah. is the number one Clearly, obviously, yeah. right? It's always going to be, you know, because there's such a contrast to each other, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's almost, I can't think of another rogues gallery where there's more of a contrast. And like, if you think about like Superman and Lex Luthor, not really. I mean, there's a contrast there, obviously, but that's not like night and day, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I can't think of any, any others. Um, uh, but of all comics books characters, and I'm not the biggest fan of DC naturally. I like Batman. I like Superman. I like, you know, but I'm not like invested in DC like I am Marvel. Right. And I can't think of really any other rogues gallery for any character in all of comics that is more famous than Batman's. No, Batman. You could ask anyone on the street, name four or five enemies of Batman versus any other comic book character. And they're going to be able to do it more than any other comic book character. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not the biggest comics fan at all. And I wouldn't 
be able to rattle these things off. That's and, the thing with, yeah. with Batman is he has the best rogues gallery. You know, they're going to make some mistakes and, and continually try and, and force movies to have like two, three of them at once, you mm-hmm. know, and try and, and like stick everything to the wall, you know. But um, obviously that didn't go through with Billy D. Williams, although that would have been really interesting to see. Yeah. But um, this was obviously less popular with the writers. And so a lot of ideas went through several iterations, including Bruce Wayne's engagement to Vicki Vale from the first movie. Um, uh, the Penguin was an avian-themed criminal at one time who used birds as weapons. Well, he did, I guess, in this. You know? And actually, the to, to me, the, the most – I love Danny DeVito as Penguin in this movie. I think it's a really masterful performance. I agree. And iconic. Uh, I think the makeup is amazing from Stan Winston, but at the same time, the best and most comic accurate um, to me portrayal of the penguin as a character is in the new movie, the Batman by Colin Farrell. Really? Yeah. Because he's supposed to be a crime boss. You don't think it's the kitschy one from the sixties? No. Hmm. It has, they have their place, you know, the Julie Newmar has her fucking place, you know? Okay. And too long. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for everything. Yeah, and so uh, and, and actually, Catwoman was eventually into into the story, and she actually was even more overtly sexualized, and she wore bondage gear and uh, would nonchalantly murder groups of men. Oh, I'm in these early that. versions, yeah, I'd like to see that one. I'm really here for that. Yeah, and so uh, and in one version, Robin was included, and the main enemies were uh, assault assault rifle wielding Santas. Oh, I'm definitely here for that. <laughs> see, but you could see, like, looking at all this, that it's kind of all made it into it a little bit, a little bit. You know, Catwoman did get like a couple of scenes, you know, where she was like a ta- especially that one guy where she plays tic tac toe with her claws on the guy's face and uh-huh. kind of alludes that she gouges his eyes out, and then she turns and like. Does abuses that woman <laughs> you know oh. she's like fuck you for being a victim don't be so stupid you yeah. stupid bitch you yeah. big stinky bitch <laughs> so just folding in the cheese there <laughs> just fold it in yeah so uh, eventually tim burton agreed to come back even though like we said he didn't really like the idea of sequels and he wanted creative control and he got it and the first thing he did was he pl- replaced the the existing writer and the earlier writers with someone he thought wouldn't have a relationship or opinion on batman which was daniel waters whose script for heathers was something that he absolutely loved oh we're doing heathers you're seeing that connection right yes yeah so obviously obviously if you watch heathers that's something that he would have loved yes you know and i'm wondering uh at what point beetlejuice had come out I think Beetlejuice came out before Heathers did. Okay. Because I know that he would have watched it for one and a writer, you know, at yeah. the very least. Um, that movie is very, very Burton-esque. It is. And we're going to be talking about Heathers very soon, you guys. Just spoiler alerts. So <clears throat> I'm sure we'll be talking about like Burton influences all over that fucking movie. But there are a lot of connections with this. And, and as we get into casting, some of that's going to become a little bit more clear as well. So Burton wanted to cast Marlon Brando, of all people. Um, you know, who agreed to do Superman back in like 78, I right. guess, mm-hmm. uh, where he played Superman's father, Jell, Jarell, Jell-El, Jell-El, Grape Jell, I don't know, <laughs> Jell-El, 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 whatever. So they thought maybe he would, he would do it. I don't know whatever happened with that, but Warner Brothers, meanwhile, preferred Dustin Hoffman, uh, and eventually Christopher Lloyd and Robert De Niro were also considered for the Penguin. But Danny DeVito became the front runner when Waters re-envisioned the character as more of a deformed human bird hybrid. Which is cool. I love that he came to mind when they were thinking. <laughs> like, like, how insulting is that? But it's honestly, what, what was DeVito really known for before this movie come, came out? I'm thinking like a romancing the stone. Romancing the stone. He was on Taxi because he was doing producer. Oh yeah, he was big on Taxi. That's right. Yeah, that's, that was pretty big. 
So uh, yeah, he was probably a household name by that point for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, he was actually initially reluctant to accept the role until he was actually convinced by his close friend, Jack Nicholson, who apparently had a blast making the first one or at least made a shit ton of money. Yeah. He got paid a lot of money to make Batman. And I think that Jack Nicholson probably has a blast making all his movies because he looks like someone who's like constantly stoned all the time. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, casting Catwoman, Selena Kyle, was apparently difficult. So Annette Bening was initially secured for the role. Okay. But then she got pregnant. Yep. So she had to drop out. And so actresses lobbied for the part very famously, including Ellen Barkin, Cher, Bridget Fonda, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, Madonna. uh, And she says that she actually turned it down. Madonna? uh, At one point. Like after, uh, I think after Annette Bening lost it, they went to her and then she she turned it down because she had done Dick Tracy, Mm -hmm. I think like a year or two earlier, right? And she's good in that. It's the same fucking character, though. Basically. I mean, like, well, she's Mahoney and Catwoman. Spot, you know? Yeah. So uh, Julie Newmar, who was 60 at the time. So I don't know. <laughs> she obviously <laughs> wanted it because she had played it, you know. Uh, Lena Olin, Susan Sarandon, uh, Raquel Welch, and uh, and somehow Kim Basinger wanted, you know, even though she was Vicky Vance, she was like, hey, I'll come back and then we can do the engagement. But then she becomes Catwoman after some sort of a trauma. And so they were trying to like, she was trying to. Uh, get them to merge the characters. Okay. I was, I was going to ask, like, how in the world yeah. is Kim Basinger going to come and be Selena Kyle? Yeah. That's dumb. It would be interesting with Susan Sarandon, too. I don't know how they would have made that work, but she showed a lot of interest, um, but eventually opted to take a leading role in Lorenzo's Oil, mm-hmm. which is a, an amazing movie. I love Lorenzo's Oil. Uh, which was a role that was vacated by Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> what? I didn't know that. Yeah. So they swapped places. <laughs> She would get her turn in um, uh, Deep Blue Ocean or whatever, like Deep Into the Ocean. Yeah. Well, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer has done a lot of dramatic work as well. She has. What strikes me the most, though, is that all these actresses that we have talked about in this this little section. Witches of Eastwick. Oh, my God. I didn't even <laughs> think about that. They're all in, uh, three of them are in Witches of, Witches of Eastwick. Yeah. But they're all sex spots in their own right. Yeah. You know, like all of them, every single one of them. Julie Newmar, obviously, in her heyday. Like the current ones at that time, Jennifer Jason Lee, Bridget Fonda, Lena Olin, you know, these are all like sex pot women Yeah. for, you know, for better or for worse. They've played roles like that somewhere in their career. Yeah. Right? I feel like somewhere along the line, Bridget Fonda got fucked because her career, she was a huge talent and a beauty. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder whatever kind of happened to her. She was kind of relegated to Hallmark movies and shit after that, you know? Yeah. I don't know what she's doing now. I'm super glad that Jennifer Jason Lee has had a resurgence in her career though. Cause every time I see her in something now, she's fantastic. Oh yeah. So for sure. But the most prominent candidate, however, was the saga that was Sean Young. I've been waiting for this anecdote. Yeah. And so <laughs> Sean Young, uh, you might recognize her from Dune as yep. the main um uh, actress or the princess or whatever the fuck she was. She's not the princess, but the desert person uh, for Atreides or whatever. And then also she was in um Blade Runner. Yes. And she was in A Kiss Before Dying. She was in a lot of things in that like Yeah, I love early Sean Young. I, I like Shang Young, period. She's, um, she's fun to watch. She has some issues, I think. Um, and I think they started to come to a head around this time. And so I don't want to make fun of her too much, but she really made a fool of herself. Yes. Right. And so she went to Warner Brothers like because the story behind this is that she was originally cast as Vicki Vale. Okay. In the first right. movie. She fell off a horse and injured herself and had to drop out. 
And so Kim Basinger took over. Mm-hmm. So she was already cast. So she felt kind of entitled to this because she did. She wanted she was like, hey, I just need a couple of accommodations. Like I could still play this role. And they're like, no, you can't do it. It's a physical role. You can't do it. And so the studio wouldn't let her. And so she felt like she had already established, she had already gone through the process that she that she was entitled to this and that this is a role that she wanted even more. And rightfully so. Right. And so she went about it the wrong way, though. And so they weren't taking her calls. Um, and she made a homemade fucking Catwoman costume, <laughs> which looked like the 60s. Like, she knows it's not the vibe. Nope. You know? And, and then she went through to an, an impromptu audition after breaking into the studio for, for Tim Burton, who reportedly hid under his desk to avoid her. <laughs> <laughs> and she was super aggressive about this, right? And so she shared uh, a video of her. She filmed herself and shared it with Entertainment Tonight as part of her pitch. So this was super public. And then she went on to the Joan Rivers show. I thought it was Sally Jesse Raphael, and I've been saying that, um, but it's actually the Joan Rivers show in her homemade costume and showed up and, and all the while kind of talking shit about Burton and Warner Brothers. And you can see this clip on YouTube. Yes. Yeah. You can look it up. And it's 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 really cringy. And her career never really recovered. No, I mean, because when you start talking shit about directors and movie studios, yeah, yeah, I mean, like that is kind of like a death nail, right? Well, she was probably trying to do what some men had done. Spielberg famously started his career by basically breaking in and starting an office for himself in the janitor's closet, you know? And I don't know how apocryphal some of these stories are, but like the shit that she was doing was aggressive, like in a way that a man would have done, you know? But I, I don't, I can't even think of a man going after a role like this so publicly with a, an audition video that taped to entertainment tonight, you know, this is all very out of the ordinary for any gender. Well, I think the the, the big thing to talk about in this particular situation, especially for the time period that we're talking about, and I don't think that things have gotten a lot better in Hollywood either, is that when guys do stuff like this, that's considered ballsy, right? And when women do stuff like this, they're considered crazy. That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. But at the same time, I can't think of men that went as far as she did. No. I mean, I really can't either off the top of my head. I'm sure that it has happened. I'm sure walking in and making your own appointments and being gutsy happened. I mean, like like my anecdote about Spielberg a little bit. You know, his was a little bit more passive than hiding under, you know, like trying to get into someone's office and banging on the door and yelling for them. But unfortunately, I mean, I've seen this clip on YouTube. You've shown this to me, right? And so, like, uh, she she kind of does look like she's losing grip a little bit, you know? And I, I get that. But you're right. I feel like after after that, her career kind of like stopped. I feel like nobody wanted to work with her anymore, which is a shame. I think she has some sort of bipolar issue where she goes manic. It's this possible. really does feel like a manic episode. It looks like it. You know, and so I really like I'm hoping I really want to see more of her, you know, and so I'm hoping that she's getting healthier and or has been getting healthier. I know that more recently she's had some issues too, but she was like slowly going back into the talk show circuit and things like that. It's kind of a D list. Mm-hmm. And I, I really hate to see that, but at least she's like seeing seeming like more normal now, I think. Yeah, I think she's done like some reality television. Yeah, and I think she's gotten some chips off of her shoulder a little yeah. bit, you know, but it might be too late, you know. It's hard to regain. I mean, if you have a if you have a career that's promising and has a good trajectory, right? And then something like this happens and you just stop getting work, it's hard. It's especially hard for women, I think, to get back into the game. Yeah. But, you know, uh, she did have something of a kind of tiny comeback when she did uh, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, but then she was kind of parodying herself, and like she at the end of the film is, d- is discovered that she was um, imp- a female impersonator, and that she it showed like a dick print on the, on her underwear and everything, and it was just like 
Yeah. That didn't really do her any favors. I was just now, I mean, because I totally forgot that she was in that movie. And then just as you were talking about it, I was just like, didn't she play like a man though in that movie? Yeah. That's not nice. Yeah. So anyway, the role obviously went to Michelle Pfeiffer. Thank God. Um, you know, who was described as a proven actress who got along with Burton. Although some publications said that it would stretch her acting abilities, you know, fuck them. Uh, Pfeiffer had also been considered for Vicki Vale, but at the time, Michael Keaton had vetoed her casting because they used to date and he was trying to uh, reconcile with his wife Oh, at the time. So there's a lot of interesting to not get apart. That's a lot of interesting connections in my opinion, you know? Yeah. He was just like, I'm not, I'm going to drop out if you do this because I'm, my personal life is more important. I'm trying to get back with my wife. And since I was with Michelle Pfeiffer, if I green light this casting or if I sit by and do nothing, it's, it could really hurt my efforts here. And I get it. I do. But obviously they were still friends and able to work together and hired for the second go around. You and know, I think she they have good chemistry. At some point, Michelle Pfeiffer said she would do this for free because she was, she says she was obsessed with Catwoman when she was a kid. Okay. And she campaigned very quietly for it, you know, differently. And even though Annette Benning was going to get, I think 1 million, uh, she got three million for this, even though she was basically like, "I'll do it for free," <laughs> you know. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer at this point had already been nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, so uh, like she had proven herself to the acting community, like she is a fantastic actress, and I feel like this is like one of the first times that she got to play something more fun and more physical because she was in like Witches of Eastwick and yeah. like Scarface and like Fabulous Baker Boys, which she got the nomination for, right? And and so like she finally got to do something that was fun. And watching Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie is fucking joyous, yeah, to me. No, it's, she, it's so good. She's so amazing in this, transcendent and, in this role. Yeah. She's and I, still the best Catwoman, in my opinion. Yes, I completely agree. I mean, Zoe Kravitz, whatever, is fine. I thought she was fine. I thought she was good. Yeah. I thought she did a good job. And it was a, a very comics-based um, yes. her version of Catwoman. And this version of Catwoman is not, Versus, obviously. like, my least favorite is probably the Christopher Nolan Catwoman. How dare you say something about Anne Hathaway? Like I love Anne Hathaway, you know? But she that character... Not on, Halle Berry? On, on the page. Oh, I had forgotten. I had. Yeah, take that back right now. I am taking that back. <laughs> Poor Good Halle sir. Berry. Poor Halle Berry. <laughs> I was like, how dare you fucking rag on Anne Hathaway and not Halle Berry? God damn it, though. Eartha Kitt is my favorite original Catwoman from like the 60s series. I agree. Because there were like three different actresses that. Julie, played Catwoman. yeah, everyone says like the favorite a gay person is supposed to say Eartha Kitt is by far my favorite. I, I feel like more gay people would say Eartha Kitt. Really? Actually, yeah. Okay. I mean, because she is such a fucking icon as Catwoman right i don't know i love eartha kit she, yeah she has that fucking voice i mean she has that purr sound to her oh, any, like yeah. naturally right she's an amazing cat woman but michelle pfeiffer is really 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 good i i, I cannot oversell how michelle good michelle pfeiffer, pfeiffer is black nice. gold <laughs> <laughs> street masterpiece eartha kit that black gold <laughs> styling Wildin', living it up as a kitty. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) uh, Christopher Walken was the first choice to play Max Shrek and was pretty much immediately hired. I I don't know how much, you know, I want to talk about that. Uh, There are reports that David Bowie was actually the first choice, but he turned it down to do Fire Walk With Me, which actually sounds like a very David Bowie type of thing to do. Yeah, I don't see David Bowie playing Max Shrek. I I can see it. You know, I, I feel like almost anyone... 
could have, you know, it was actually made for like supposed to be like a Vincent Price type of character, which Christopher Walken isn't. No. And actually, Tim Burton didn't want Christopher Walken because he was terrified by him. I'm personally. sure. I'm kind of terrified by Christopher But Walken. obviously he befriended him because he used him later in a couple of movies. At That's least right. one. Sleepy oh, Hollow. Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. But um, yeah. So, and of course, two points out there if you know where the, the name Max Shrek comes from. I don't. You don't? I don't. Oh, I thought you would. I don't, I don't think so. Okay. So Max Shrek is uh, the name of the actor who played Count Orlock in uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the original Nosferatu. So that's where that comes from. And there's some references also to Cabinet of Dr. Calgary in here. With some of the design. I can see that. Yeah. German expressionism. <laughs> Which is a good thing. Which Tim Burton is certainly an, an offshoot of. Okay. I do agree with the consensus on Rotten Tomatoes that Christopher Walken is just being Christopher Walken. But yeah. I kind of agree that when I see him in any movie. He's never been anything but Christopher Walken. Exactly. Um, you know. Anyway. So principal photography began on September 3rd, 1991. Uh, Burton wanted to film the in the United States with American actors because he believed that Batman had suffered from a British subtext, whatever that means. <laughs> Convenient for Alfred, Michael Guff. Uh, the economics of filming Batman in the United Kingdom had also changed, making it more cost-effective to remain in the U.S. And of course, if you recall, <laughs> this meant abandoning the English Batman sets in favor of Burton's new design. So all of those years of guarding those sets... <laughs> Didn't even ship him over. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> like someone's like, we're just gonna film it here. They just walk in there and like throw a match. Like fuck it. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> someone's lost their job. <laughs> they have to. We don't have a guard anymore. Yeah. Just so speaking of the sets, some of them were kept very, very cold for the live Emperor Blackfooted and King Penguins that were on set. Adorable. Yeah. And so the birds were flown in on refrigerated airplanes for filming and had to be uh, refrigerated uh, waiting areas with swimming pools stacked with like half a ton of ice daily and fresh fish. This is why I can't own a penguin, even though I really, really want one. Maybe I can own Danny DeVito instead. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of him, DeVito said that he generally liked being on set, but disliked the cold conditions. Of course, despite this complaint, ironically, he was the only person even somewhat comfortable because of his costume's heavy padding. Right. He already had a coat on. Yeah. <laughs> Versus like Vincent Chiavelli had to be in like nothing but like a, you know, long like overcoat. I love Vincent Chiavelli. I know. And that poodle princess, she had almost nothing on. Yeah. And that poor poodle. <laughs> no wonder she was clutching that dog so tight. She's like. Yeah. So okay. speaking of, all, you know, there were so many interesting, weird details in this movie. Yes. With, uh, with the casting and like um, there was like no two like actors alike. Maybe some of the Red Triangle gang that were just like basic clowns, but they all had different things to do, you know. Um, and so I when I think about this movie, I almost immediately think of the production design. Yes. Well, and, when I think about Tim Burton anyway, I think about production design. Well, especially this movie with all the statue work and all of the costume work and just the general like lighting and art design from like the logos of like the Shrek, Max Shrek stuff, company stuff to like the room designs, like the the Gotham downtown areas, just like the uh, like the whimsical, like gothic, dark nature of everything mm-hmm. and how it was all still different and, and had variety. And so there's just like a lot of really cool design in this movie. I mean, I completely agree with that. <clears throat> but I mean, I like I said, I mean, and this could be probably like the best production design in a Tim Burton film. I think there are other things that kind of rival that. I think as his career went on. Like, Certainly with style. There's more stylized Tim Burton films for sure. But a lot of it's achieved with like things that weren't really in physical space comparatively to this film. Well, I mean, if you think about things like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and things like that, like he, yeah, he creates like he creates an environment. 
Every every movie he's done, really. Yes, I mean Beetlejuice, like Beetlejuice. I mean like everything. Um, Edward Scissorhands has a lot of it, but you can see that kind of reflected in this movie. It's a little bit more dark and gritty and grounded than some of his others. I oh would yeah, say. but there's still kind of like an over the topness, um, and and whimsical, dark like gothicness to it. That's not the same as some of his others. I think, which is completely missing in the original Batman. Not completely. I, I think mean, Gotham I, is still super like that church at the end, like in the, the miniatures they did for Gotham are just like super gothic and, and, and interesting to me. Yeah. But out of all the movies that I've seen that Tim Burton has directed, like that's the one that stands out as the least Burtony to me is the original Batman from 89. Yes, I would. I would agree. I mean, out of his oeuvre, right? His I would say there's specific scenes where I would disagree, but overall you're right. It's I not mean, chock full like this one is. I mean, like others are. Burton is almost Every time he makes a movie, like hitting you over the head with his production design, costume design, makeup design, stuff like that, it all feels like Burton. Yeah, and I don't know if this is like an apples to apples conversation or if it's a tomato tomato conversation. Yeah. But I mean, we're comparing like with like, and in, in a way, you know, it's like we are. I mean, but I, I mean, I. How far is the is the Burton volume turned up in this movie? You know what I mean? That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Yeah. And like I've I've seen movies where it's turned way higher than this, right? But I feel like this movie has to be more grounded, right, and gritty because that's what Batman is, right? So even if Burton wanted to make something like fucking Beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands, right, which has their own like dark place, right? He has to have it gritty. He has to have it Batman-y. He can't change it too yeah. much. But but some things just seem like you can tell when studio has like if you look at like the original concept art. For a lot of things for movies, and then you look at the actual movie, it's been like toned down and mm-hmm. and like realized like more grounded. But this, uh, I bought the art book when I was before I ever saw the movie. Yeah, and I remember just like obsessing over that and looking at all the designs and being like, "How is this going to be on film?" And like seeing, uh, especially the the um, uh, Gotham Zoo and like the Arctic World or whatever, and all of that, and that design was just like exactly the way they like everything they designed showed up on film like they didn't do because of that creative control nothing got watered down which is really super cool to say it is that's very good i mean because i i like it when directors can work with everybody on their team right and create a vision and have it come to fruition you know what i mean without people getting in the way and saying no you can't do this because it's going to make you know cost too much money or not make enough money for the movie and things like that i feel like post batman returns and obviously burton did not go on to direct any other batman movies no they went downhill pretty quickly yeah you know and and we'll get into a little bit of that later but first we 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 also need to talk about some of the effects and the animatronics stan winston did an outstanding job here a lot of the times you cannot tell whether it's a little person in a penguin costume an animatronic penguin or a real penguin and in fact uh they would corral the penguins at the end of the day and uh, stan winston's team would actually find sometimes a real penguin snuggled up to the animatronic penguins. Oh my God, really? And they would have to go back to the to the handlers and say, hey, we found another one. I've gone back to a time when penguins weren't just confined to zoos. Yes. Except they were. And uh, I was surprising <laughs> amount of CG in this film, which I didn't realize. Like the the bats. Um, the bats thought, were CG? I thought they were like blue screened or something else, but all of the bats in this movie were CG. Really? Yeah. I couldn't tell. Yeah. I don't know if they're like hand animated, you know, or, or whatever, but uh, it was computer generated graphics. Hmm. Well, they're obviously not real bats, but yeah. And so like they look pretty real, especially when it's like a medium shot of like the umbrella opening up and bats going everywhere mm-hmm. with the shadows and everything. I think this must have been like hand drawn or, or something. Um, this is very early for CG. 
And so that's simplistic enough because they just be bats, like black, you know. Yeah, you just make some swirls around a person. Yeah, I don't know. They looked, it was pretty seamless for me. And there was like some other things that were a little bit more hokey, like his stupid batarang that like goes around and like. Oh, God. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, there was a lot of cool work uh, and, and you know, and, and some seamless uh, work that you wouldn't have expected. And of course, Stan Winston also did the, the makeup uh, effects for the Penguin. Which is incredible. Which are still under wrapped, under wraps, I, w- I would say. Like he assigned an agreement that you would never talk about how that, ma- that makeup was done. Really? Or achieved. You couldn't even tell his family. Jesus. Yeah. Well, Stan Winston, I mean, <clears throat> we've talked about him before. The yeah, podcast. the late great yeah. Stan Winston. I mean, like he... We as horror fans owe a huge debt to him anyway. Like he created so, 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 so much. And Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I'm not surprised anytime when I see his name attached to a movie to find greatness in it. Yeah. Ever. So, but the makeup for the pink one was amazing. Right. I mean, they probably should have won that Academy Award. I really imagine. fucking really should. I mean, I don't know what one I need to go back and look. Yeah. I didn't bother to look it up. So I was so mad about it. And I was just like <laughs> fucking, you know, like Stan Winston, I never won an Academy Award and he probably should have, you know, he I, never won an Academy of fucking award. Not that I, not that I can think of Like Rob Bottin has won an Academy Award, but they someone... were this close for interview the vampire because of all the subtle work they did. And then there was a transformation that Lestat had when he was dying on the floor mm-hmm. that was completely seamless with an animatronic and Tom Cruise's performance. That's right. We talked about that in that episode. And People couldn't tell that the, the actual effect had happened, and so he didn't get he didn't get the award. He's like he he said in interviews about it. He was like, if you want an award, you have to make it fairly obvious that has an effect. And that's the thing is that when it comes to the makeup category, and I'm just going to go off on a fucking Academy Award rant, which I have which I am known to do, listeners, which you've heard, I'm sure. People who work in the horror community or genre community get no respect at award ceremonies anyway, except for Saturn, the, except for the Saturn Awards. But when it comes to makeup, like we are like routinely all year long genre films have the best fucking makeup effects like constantly and not even just like special makeup effects i mean even just like beauty makeup and stuff like that i think is routinely good in genre film and they get zero respect right people like stan winston wouldn't win an academy award yeah but like you slap a fake nose on nicole kidman and you're gonna win a fucking academy award here we go here's your oscar you know but like so when when people like rob Bottin win an Academy Award. It's a really big fucking deal. When movies like Dune get nominated for makeup at the Academy Awards, it's a really big fucking deal. Yeah. You know? And I, if I remember correctly, Dune won last year. I'm hoping. So, I don't know. Um, I'm sure that if I made a mistake during any of that rant, I'll be told about it. So, it's fine. Yeah. Correct me so I don't have to look it up. Well, speaking of Oscars, I don't know how many Danny Elfman has gotten, but this is one of my favorite scores of his of all time. Danny Elfman. Like he knocked it out of the park for Batman in the, in the he, theme in general. Yes, but this really one is so much more nuanced and interesting and, and kind of melancholy, which I always love. Mm-hmm. Um, that is almost like a perfected version. Like it's the best Danny Elfman Batman score you're going to get, really. For real. Because I feel like in the original Batman, 1989 Batman, right? They're really trying to market the fuck out of that movie, right? Hence, a soundtrack that is mostly Prince. Well, yeah, and he was pissed about that. And he almost didn't return because of that. Yeah. But I feel like in this movie, they're not going for that bombastic, we're going to sell a soundtrack kind of like 
atmosphere, right? They're, they let Danny Elfman like do his thing. And I really, really love the score. Like I have a workout score playlist, right? And a lot of Batman Returns is on it. Although that Batman Forever soundtrack is pretty fucking awesome. Batman Forever <laughs> has the best fucking soundtrack. I mean, that song by U2 is on there, right? Yeah, uh, and uh, Kiss from a Rose on Your Grave or yes. whatever the fuck is on there. And PJ Harvey's on it. Brandy's on it. I love that soundtrack. I still listen to it all the time. In fact, like Batman Returns is probably my favorite Batman movie. Um, and my second is probably Batman Forever. <laughs> and it's stupid. It's a stupid fucking movie. It is really dumb. But I love it's it. It's better than Batman and Robin. Oh, God. It feels like that was like really Batman Forever was like Joel Schumacher doing what Tim Burton was doing in the first movie. Yeah. And then like all the reins were let go for Batman and Robin and was just like, stop it. And Joel Schumacher got to be the gayest man that he is inside. You know, he was just like, we're just going to make this gay. Stop the bat nips. (laughs) The bat nips and that fucking ass. Like we're like, really? Whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Bad. Fuck. You know what? Come to think of it. I love Batman. I have seen every fucking Batman movie now. Like, and I, I routinely enjoy them right i like the kitschy series like batman could be my favorite fucking superhero well the best series is the animated series Um, yes which uh, i used to watch early seasons and then uh i I recently rewatched for the first time in a long time um batman mask of the phantasm so good series movie and like i was shocked with how much more adult it was even than this movie (laughs) like it's much more like almost adult themes and shit and there was just like really good interesting performances awesome art and amazing music as well mm-hmm. and i'm just like holy shit so if if you guys want to watch a, like a, a cool like darker and more adult like cartoon version of batman that's actually good go see uh the mask of the phantasm i watched that a lot when i was I a saw kid. the theater I, I i didn't even know it was in the theaters i watched it on video a lot i think i bought it at one point because i watched it so many times yeah i thought was i gonna watch this it's gonna be disappointing i'm gonna see it through the nostalgia lens, but no it was actually legit good so this is like blowing my mind right now because like I really, I really enjoy the shit out of Batman. I went back and I watched a YouTube video of uh, Siskel and Ebert talking about Mask of the Phantasm to see if they had seen it back then. Okay. And oh, uh, on their show, you they mean? did a six month later review of it. Really? Because they did not watch it and they refused to, to watch a Batman cartoon in the theaters or review it live. Mm-hmm. But they went back after the fact, six months later, and they were like, we need to come back and we need to tell you about this movie because it was actually very good. And it may yep. be the actual best Batman movie that's actually come out, including the live action movies. And we absolutely loved it. And so both Siskel and Ebert were like gushing about it. And they're like, go rent this movie. We actually ended up renting it and watching it after like some people told us to. And we should have covered it. It's really, really good. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, we should be doing that on Patreon this month. Later on. I mean, it's not like, you know, six out of five stars or anything. You know what I mean? No, but it's a good, it's a really good animated yeah. film. It's one of the best Batman films, really. Yes. Anyway. I would agree. We have digressed all uh, over the yes. place. We're, We're not have digressed all over this table. movie anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Elfman just got me into it. <laughs> That's what, okay. One of, another digression. Sorry. <laughs> one of my favorite jokes from Mystery Science Theater is... <laughs> from an episode and this music is playing in the background and it's very like dun 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 and one of the guys is like Danny Elfman Danny Elfman this course sounds like Danny Elfman <laughs> I just laugh a lot of the times you can hear Danny Elfman's course just yeah. like you can hear John Williams I mean like he and Tim Burton are like they go hand in hand you know what I mean like you, you're watching a movie you know it's Tim Burton you're listening to a score you know it's Danny Elfman I mean they're singing although every once in a while he will disguise himself like there's a track on Chicago that's really uh-huh. fucking good and it's he also did have you seen the movie Wizard with Emilio Estevez he wrote the score for that and it sounds nothing like his yeah. work you know but like for the most part his bombastic scores sound alike maybe when it's just when he's with Burton I really love his Spider-Man score like for, for the first Spider-Man movie yes it's an amazing 
um, intro. And also when we were doing our top 10 horror scores, like Danny Elfman made an appearance because he did Nightbreed and it's one of my favorite horror scores. So there, we still continue to talk about Danny Elfman. We love you, Danny. Yeah, we do. So um, I know we talked about accolades, but we do need to talk about some of the aftermath and legacy of this because we didn't really quite go into or deep dive really the response to this movie. <laughs> yeah. time. So overall, the U.S. and Canadian box office at, at this time underperformed in 1992 with admissions down by up to 5% and about 290 million tickets sold compared to over 300 million each of the preceding four years. So industry professionals blamed the drop on the lack of quality of the films being released, considering them too derivative or dull to attract audiences. And remember, like, Basic Instinct's coming around this time. A lot of good movies are coming out Fucking around Sister time. Act made a shit ton of money. Yeah. And so even uh, even films that were considered successful had significant box office drops week after week from what, you know, apparently was caused by negative word of mouth and things like this. And they were blaming the films. So all these people were blaming the, the creatives. And that's just I, – I, looking back at this time, I can't disagree more, right? Yeah. And uh, industry executive Frank Price said that the releases were not attracting the younger audiences and children, which were vital to film's success. And so uh, rising ticket prices, competition from the Olympics, and an economic recession were also considered contributing factors uh, to the declining figures. And just before this, I think there was like an oil price shock as well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of shit's happening. There was just the election. A Democratic president was just elected, Clinton, who succeeded Bush. And every time that happens, or a lot of time that happens with Republicans, Republican going to Democrat, the economy does a little correction, yeah. but it was already correcting. Uh, and so it they went into an actual recession. And so they're blaming all this on the creatives rather than the, like the macroeconomic factors that were going on at the time. Which makes a lot more sense. It's I mean, super like, weird. the Olympics are a huge staggering drawing power. Because no Batman what. Returns made 330% of its high budget. Yes. Back. And they're, they're still blaming it. For for problems with the movie, and I'm just like, no, like there's lightning in a bottle with with a uh, with a lot of these that come out as first movies, but we'll get into that a little bit later too. So uh, still, Batman Returns: Lethal Weapon three contributed to Warner Brothers' best first half year in its history, and they still blamed blamed them, and were expected to return over 200 million to the studio from the box office. Batman Returns was considered a disappointment as a sequel to the fifth highest grossing film ever made, obviously, when you compare it like that. Mm-hmm. However, and uh, it fell about $114 million short of Batman's $411.6 million theatrical gross. But this happens a lot. Like, consider the first Star Wars. You wouldn't think Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi were bombs. No. Or blame the, the stories for anything like that, because Star Wars was a nuclear bomb. Nothing had happened like it before anything comparing to it and it took uh, like 10 years for any movie to make just as much or more money if not 20 years and its sequels which came out within 10 years um in like 82 and 83 or 81 and 83 or something like that from 77 um they didn't make as much money but they weren't considered bombs or disappointments or anything like that sure you want the sequels that same thing happened with spider-man same thing happened with uh phantom menace when the new star wars movies came out their sequels these are cultural milestones when these movies come out oh my god they're making a spider-man movie oh my god they're making a batman movie oh my god this star wars is coming out for the first time in 15 20 years well and these are cultural zeitgeist moments that feed the box office and so you cannot it's not fair to judge the sequels to these movies uh, especially when they're that successful 
for being some sort of somehow like a creative uh, disasters or something like that. And that's what I was going to say is that I feel like you're, you're comparing something. So when something new comes out and something is very, very zeitgeist, obviously everyone in the world is going to go see it. Right. And then they're going to find their more niche audience for the sequels. Right. So people are going to stick around for empire strikes back or return of the Jedi or Batman returns because they want to, right. Not because there's like, it's the go, it's the thing to go do. Everyone's going to go see Batman. Right. And then a sequel's coming out. They're like, I really didn't care for the first one or whatever. It's going to find the audience that really cares about it. Yeah. And I kind of hate that people saying they're like, things are not attracting younger audiences or children. Right. And I, I, feel i feel like and maybe i'm wrong maybe i've just become a really old man that people don't really talk about that anymore i feel like people are going after a different demographic at the box office i feel like just maybe like five or six years ago we had seen way more kids movies than we do today yeah it's just a handful really things come in flow in waves you know well that and i guess like with the advent of streaming right like disney can find a much larger captive audience at home than they can with people taking their kids to the movies well, to things see have something. been super volatile with covid yes you know, that's also not true too long ago we had day and date releases you mm-hmm. know and and only now are we seeing more more of a push to go into the theater. You know, in a way, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Avatar, um, Way of Water sequel. Because Avatar uh, came out in 2009, over 10 years ago, mm-hmm. and was this gigantic thing. It was the first movie to break all of those records as, like, the number one movie ever, you know, for gross, including inflation, I think. I digress because I think it's been long enough that people are going to go back to the theater to see – Avatar, right? And so it's going to be a, I think it's going to make just as much or more money than the original one did. But his other sequels are going to come out uh, within one or two years, back to back to back to back, like three or four sequels. And those I don't think are going to make as much money because of this phenomenon. I really, I mean, this is way off topic and I don't know, but I, I kind of felt like early this year that this was going to bomb. Like the Avatar was going to bomb, like fully. I still kind of think that. Never. But that just James Cameron. against James Cameron. I know. I'm still just not excited. Never. About it. <laughs> I think you securely placed it in your sci-fi ghetto at the time, and you've dismantled that brick by brick over the last 12 years, and so you are ready for it with fresh eyes again. I mean, I will watch it again. Anyway, wow. <laughs> Yet again, it's like we don't want to talk about this movie. Yeet. Um, yeah. So by July, 1992, anonymous Warner brothers executives reportedly said about the film, it's too dark. It's not a lot of fun. Bullshit. It's dark and it's fun. Yeah. Well, speaking of darkness, despite its PG 13 rating from the motion picture association, warning parents that a film might contain strong content, unsuitable for children. Some audiences, particularly parents disliked Batman returns, violent and sexualized content. And the studio received thousands of complaint letters and writer, uh, Daniel waters, recall the aftermath of one screening that he went to. He said, quote, kids were crying and people were acting like they've been punched in the stomach and like they've been mugged. (laughs) It's not that bad. He had anticipated some backlash and he, quote, relished that reaction. Good. (laughs) But part of him was like, quote, like, oops. (laughs) (laughs) But Waters recalled being told that Batman Returns was a great movie for people who don't like Batman. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, he doesn't show up to like 35 minutes. In. That's right. He's not even in like, he's not even in the movie. Yeah. Although the film was criticized for depicting Batman killing people, which it does. Yeah. Uh, Water said, quote, to me, Batman not killing the Joker in The Dark Knight, played by Heath Ledger at the end of, uh, of that movie, after proving he can get out of any prison, it's like, come on, man, kill the Joker, which I kind of agree with. I mean, Batman as a Except character. Except it's not established Batman post 90s as he does not kill. Yeah, I mean, he's the, to me, he's the only superhero that I could envision actually killing people, right? Like, it just seems like something that he would normally do. He kills people left and right. Yeah. In this movie. And then they started doing crossovers and Superman was like, if I ever see you across that line, then uh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Stupid. So it, it depends on the story, you know, but they made it to where he was like, um, he had standards and that's how, what differentiated him from his rogues gallery and, you know, whatever. You can put Batman where you want on that morality scale, but he's a vigilante in this movie. He's killing people left and right. He's like, you know, lighting them on fire yes. and he's blowing them up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Traditionally, you don't really talk about the morals of vigilantes. You know what I mean? So, like, it's okay. He's fighting crime the way that he does it, and he's going to kill people. Yeah, and in the first movie, he, like, at least tries to even save the Joker from falling. Yes. Even though he knows he killed his parents. Mm-hmm. And this one, like, Penguin falls or whatever. He's like, eh. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Felicia. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> That's where he belongs. That's <laughs> where he belongs. He's going back from whence he came. The tone is not that he's killing people. The tone is that he's just taking care of his problems, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of sweeped under the rug a little bit. I mean a little. With the tone. But uh, according to Burton... He said, quote, I like Batman Returns better than the first one I did. There was this big backlash that it was too dark, but I found this movie much less dark. And thinking about it, if you think about the tone of the first movie versus the tone of this one, he's right. He is right. I mean, I was literally, while you were saying that, thinking about it. And the original Batman seemed way darker than this one. And it is, in tone especially. So what is it? Is it really? Is it really that it's too violent or is it too dark? No, certainly not compared to the first one. And Presumably those parents saw the first one before they brought their screaming six-year-olds into the theater. I mean, presumably, but who knows what parents Right? So it was really about the sex. It's always about the fucking sex, right? America is kind of backwards, right? Violence is okay. Sex is bad. And so a rival studio uh, executive said, quote, if you bring back Burton and Keaton, you're stuck with their vision. You can't expect, honey, I shrunk the Batman, which is apparently what they wanted, which is why they brought on Schumacher. They wanted something like... Because Batman was uh, too dark and odd for them. So they replaced him with Joel Schumacher because they wanted Honey, I Shrunk the Batman. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) I mean, I still like Batman Forever. So we'll get into the sex a little bit, but uh, that's part of the themes, which I want to discuss now. Okay. So obviously there's a theme of duality, right? In all the major characters. Penguin and Catwoman are are dark reflections of, of Bruce Wayne and Batman in different ways. Like the penguin has that wealthy background, but mm-hmm. lost his parents due to being yeeted out of their lives. Literally. <laughs> um, and presumably they died of natural causes, but no one can never be too sure. I'm sure he killed them. Maybe he did. I think so. Probably. Um, meanwhile, Catwoman was caused by trauma and the unlocking of inhibitions in a darker um, alter ego, similar to Batman. And all three are after revenge of some kind. You could say Batman's more about avenging versus Revenging, yeah, yeah, but you know, it depends on your perspective. And funnily enough, everyone at that masquerade ball at the end who has an alter ego went as themselves with no costume or mask, if you recall. That is interesting <laughs> with a capital I for sure. They're already in their costumes. I feel like any conversation that you have about Batman, no matter which Batman movie you're watching, you have to talk about duality, right? Because yeah. it happens a lot. That is a very central theme, 
in comics in general, right? But I feel like Batman is like the number one when it comes to talking about duality in like comic books or comic film. And on their date, they're even like hanging a lantern on it. It's just like, um, he's like talking about I'm complex and I have problems and yeah. I have a different side of myself. She's like, you have problems with duality or whatever. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <It's> like, <okay. laughs> just like right on the nose. Yeah. Uh, there's also a theme of power and politics. Obviously, Shrek literally feels like Trump. Yes, in this movie he does and even penguin at times with the empty speeches and the showmanship like he says like i could you know like i'm remembering like trump quotes like i could shoot someone in the face on fifth avenue and the, and the saps would still love me it feels very penguin yeah i mean and that the moment when i Batman grab her is, by the vagina it just sounds like one of the recordings i could have made of penguin you know for real i mean and <sighs> my god anytime that trump said something and people would still like clap for it it does feel very penguin and like penguin when when Batman is playing that stuff, right? When he's saying all those terrible things about the citizens of Gotham, yeah. right? And then that was where they drew the line. You know what I mean? But I feel like even Trump has said things about Americans. Way worse. And we're, yeah, and we're still like, yay. We're not we, two people are it's a religion. Yes. So I a lot of this movie, a lot of this particular Batman film, I think you're right, has a lot to do with power and politics, but I feel like power and politics play a huge part of any Batman movie. Yeah. I feel like outside of like other comic books and comic films, I feel like power and politics are at most at play in any Batman movie, more so than just about any other. There's also like a an interesting melancholy to this film that wasn't in the first one. The first one has its own kind of distinct brand of melancholy, but this one has a melancholy that's associated with loneliness. Mm-hmm. And contrasted with the commercialism uh and Christmas time, yeah, it makes it super distinct, right? Um, and it's not all about Christmas, you know, like th- she's being sold Gotham lady perfume or whatever to impress her boss, just you know, horrible. and all that stuff. And, and it's Christmas season and everything's about gifts and, and, and giving, but they're all alone. They're all isolated. That's right. You know, so it's kind of sad. And also we haven't even talked about yet while we're covering this movie in December. I mean, like it is a Christmas film. It's horror adjacency set during Christmas time. So right. yeah. And that's enough. And that's, that's, that's the all, that's all that I need for the most part to really? call it a Christmas. And movie. Michelle Pfeiffer and, and, Michelle and Pfeiffer. black latex. <laughs> <laughs> I am feeling yummier. Yeah. And uh, obviously there's a big theme of sexuality and misogyny. There's a lot of moments in this movie that are straight up like not really for kids. Like even today, <laughs> it's kind of tame overall. But no. like there are some moments where it's like straight up like not super approves. And I, it had been a while since I had seen this. Chris and I watched this movie together uh, last week before recording this, right? And it had maybe been like 20 to 25 years, maybe more than that since I had watched Batman Returns. It's been a very long time. And I was shocked I didn't get it when I was a kid. I didn't it went, either. It sailed right past my head. I mean, even the things that are so obvious to me as an adult, I was just like, I should have noticed that when I was a kid, but I didn't, no. you know? So it's fine. We need to stop having such a problem with like sexuality yeah. and especially like feminine sexuality on the screen. Like yeah. get over it. If a kid was going to understand this stuff, they're already where they can be okay with seeing it, you know? Right. And then if it sails over their head, they're okay seeing it anyway. That's fine. But I mean, right. like there were some things watching it this time. My, like my jaw was agape. I was just like, are you serious? Like, yeah. You really I was saying some this geisha hands. This? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bashful geisha. Uh, but uh, straight up licking the face. Yes. Uh, and there, you know, I got that as a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, but well, that was just like a weird cat licky kissy thing. You know, right. I didn't think of it as super sexual. Um, but there's a huge amount of sexual in- innuendo in the script. 
Uh, she says, like, you poor guys always confusing your pistols with your privates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Penguin to Catwoman says, just the pussy I've been looking for. Selena is asking Alfred for a dirty limerick to give to, to Bruce. One has just sprung to mind. <laughs> um, everything between Penguin and Catwoman's first meeting, yes. uh, which is like laying on his bed. And he's like, uh, she wants to talk to him. He's like, about naked sexual charisma, <laughs> you know, and then he's going to get the ointment or whatever. Uh, when he's talking with Penguin's talking with some of his interns or whatever, he's like, I'd like to fill her void <laughs> right oh that's right one of his uh secretaries or whatever yeah yeah and then like he like pushes the button on her boob or whatever which i didn't get as a kid either i just nope. thought he i thought he was hurting her no he was like try, trying to fucking grope her no as an adult shit. i see he was he was yeah yeah i mean that's clearly trump too yeah and uh selena and bruce at the party basically everything out of their fucking mouths goes no hard feelings and then she goes semi-hard i'd say <laughs> straight up and there's a uh, and then there's the big comfy california king in bedding what do you say we take off our costumes you know <laughs> the thing is like all this conversation reminds me of a conversation that we had about dick tracy right yeah you know like there was so much innuendo in that movie as well and that really was geared toward children like this can go either way yeah and I mean, Dick Tracy was PG as this was PG 13, but watching this for the, this last time that we watched it together, I was just like, how in the world is this movie PG 13? Like there are some like innuendous parts to it. Yeah. And I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I, I think that most kids wouldn't have a problem with it. In fact, I would tell my children. Yeah, why. I was only yeah. shocked because I wasn't prepared for it and I didn't remember it. Exactly. That's what, and that's exactly what it is. I was just like the, the licking of the face thing and the, the, Button on the boob thing. I was just like, come on. Like, yeah. That is just like, that's actual physical groping and like clicking. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, I can get why parents would be upset. But again, like the thing is, is that like, I really, really fucking hate it when people blame filmmakers or blame studios for the things that they have taken their kids to see. I'm like, if you're that kind of a parent that you're going to create that kind of like, I have to be a Karen about it, you know, go watch the movie first and then take your kids. Yeah. Like, don't be stupid. Be a good fucking look parent. Look at the goddamn rating. PG fucking 13. Exactly. I mean, obviously my parents just let me watch whatever the fuck I wanted to when I was a kid. Yeah. But that's the way to do it. Really? I mean, I turned out okay. Seemingly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to insert my crickets chirping. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho. So there's also the the big theme of misogyny, right? And that's the whole like secretary thing, because you know, depending on the origin of the comics, she's actually like a like a a sex worker who gets abused, yeah, and you know becomes to defend herself and her girls. You know, that was closely kind of alluded to a little bit in the latest Batman movies, a little bit closer to the comics in that regard. Mm-hmm. Other stories are different, other origins are different. Um, this one is certainly unique. Um, and they did their own thing very much. And I like how they made the, the contrast with, you know, how she is like this taken advantage of, you know, um, mousy kind of understated beat down kind of woman. That's what it is. In this 1990s, like workplace, like nine to five, she's very, she's getting nine to five, you know? Um, and then all of a sudden she, she has that trauma and she kind of wakes up and loses her inhibitions and becomes like her more animalistic, you know, feminist, uh, female power self and i feel like she's being beaten down more than just in her job right it's not just shrek that's doing this to her i feel like she gets it from her mother sometimes too like she her has mother yeah and from and just the public society yes yeah you know that's what it is i mean like she's getting those ads on her voice machine which trigger her as well and which is fucking misogynistic yeah. right i mean like just i mean 
they really take the time to show like how she is just like she's got the fucking boot on top of her from the man like literally boot on top of her from the man she's gotten cornered from work she's cornered from her mother familially like and she's cornered by all of this consumerism happening around her and then she just cracks right when she's you know pushed out a fucking window and it is like the most logical seeming transition from one person to villain right or like the creation of duality or whatever the duality was already there one just came to the forefront right yeah. a much more powerful woman and you can right? watch her transformation scene in a variety of ways sometimes when i watch this i get into it and i'm just like i feel really sad and angry with her selena this is your mother call me selena this is your mother why haven't you called me back hello selena kyle we're just calling to make sure you've tried Gotham Lady Perfume. One whiff of this at the office and your boss will be asking you to stay after work for a candlelight staff meeting for two. Gotham Lady Perfume, exclusively at Shrek's department. <laughs> it's a little over time. Yeah, but I've seen that... A couple of times and the music kicks in and I'm just like in it and I'm just like, I feel for her, you know, I'm just like, yes, this is one of the best things ever. I really, really do. The sadness of like that lost innocence and like pushing her stuffed animals down into the disposal Mm -hmm. and, you know, just like breaking, you know, and, and becoming something new because she has no other choice. Well, and I have no problem with melodrama, you know, so I'm fine with the overdramatization of all of it. You know what I mean? But you're right. I mean, it's a really good, like psychotic break. I also really like when she falls out of the window and all the cats are coming over and like licking her into Catwoman-ness. You know what I mean? Like it's a really, that that alone right there is some sort of like horror transformation akin even to like becoming a werewolf or something well, like that. Well, it's interesting you say that too because there's other visual storytelling going on too because she's got like these two blood marks um, kind of either on her jawline or on her neck a little bit that yep. looks like she was bitten by a vampire. She was pushed out of a window by Max Shrek. Oh, yeah, so that was some visual yes. teeth as well. But she was brought to life. So it's kind of doing that subtle supernatural that I love so much because you don't really know could she actually be uh and have this mythology of nine lives and is it all in her head and you kind of get that it's in her head but at the same time she's surviving those gunshots and and other things like that and she's very cat-like and so uh, yeah and like this movie also makes me think of cat people right the val luton right not the 80s one but uh like that movie really is all about like female prowess and female sexuality and and for like the time period it was made in cat people really like celebrated that i feel and it's just it's very very similar i I can totally see how burton would take something from from cat people and put it into this movie like it really is a horrific kind of moment it's a horror movie moment well i think a lot of this is responsible for the writer yes okay yeah you're right you know, because he really transformed her. He's the one that's responsible for making her into a secretary instead of that sex worker mm-hmm. and kind of moved it. So there would be that huge contrast of that situation of women in the in, in the workplace. Right. And then like that breaking point and like going back and and having like Max Shrek be like the nexus point where all of these characters are kind of swirling around as a as a catalyst. You know, and it kind of works, although I, I do want to say with my 2022 eyes watching this, she's kind of overcorrecting a little bit. You know, um, I'm I'm a Catwoman, hear me roar. You know, a lot of the kind of one-liner she's saying to men. You know, I do like some of the things like um, how dare you, I'm a woman, subversion. Oh, yeah. When she is using his own 
you know, there's like that sexism where you're beating a woman down and there's the sexism where you're not allowed to physically, you know, <laughs> take a woman mind. in that same way, yeah. you know, because of sexist reasons versus human humanist reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. And so she kind of throws that back in Batman's own face. And I and love that moment. Kicks the shit out of him. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really, really enjoy Catwoman as a villain. You know what I mean? I, I feel like probably she's probably my favorite Batman villain. But you can also see there's an interesting contrast. You almost don't see in other films uh, and a lot of other films that, that feature heavily like female sexuality where a woman is like owning her own sexuality versus a woman that is portraying it for the, the male gaze. Right. And That's so true. you really get that contrast in Catwoman versus the Ice Princess. Yes. Especially when they're in the scene at the same time because Catwoman's just as sexy or more sexy. Yeah, I would say in owning her sexuality, but Ice Princess is doing it in a really vapid way. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's that interesting contrast as well. And it's also kind of like white and black, you know, and how it's portrayed visually as well. So that's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Catwoman is the user and Ice Woman and the the Ice Princess is the used, you know. Clearly. But I think that that's what Catwoman is, though. I also, like, I just called her my favorite, like, Batman villain, right? But I mean, she's, like, the most sympathetic of all the Batman villains. She's not a villain. Well, she's not really a villain. You no, know? Yeah. she's she's gray area. She's, you know, chaotic neutral. <laughs> if you were going to use that scale. <laughs> so Catwoman overall, obviously, is iconic. In 2022, Variety ranked Pfeiffer's Catwoman as the second best superhero performance ever of the preceding 50 years behind only Heath Ledger's Joker. Oh my god and they're probably right yeah i'm uh i mean heath ledger's joker was amazing it was amazing to watch but pfeiffer equally amazing yeah like she's so good in this movie yeah not quite it doesn't hit me quite as much as it did when i was a kid or now yeah you know? i mean it's just different she's she's on screen less than i remember Yes, because I remember being fascinated with her oh, yeah. when I was, I was a kid. But it. also, I was a little gay boy, you know? And so, yeah. like. I had to have the whip, and I think I told my parents it was because of Indiana Jones. <laughs> You're like, no, it's Catwoman. Yeah. You're like, how could you? <laughs> I'm a woman. <laughs> my God. Uh, yeah, I just, when I was a kid, man, Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie was everything to me. And she still is, right? I really liked it. It really is akin to also talking about like Madonna and Dick Tracy, like all those roles when I was younger, I just really liked it. And I still do. They made me who I am today. Do you have some fun facts for me? Oh boy. Howdy. Bob's your long episode. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, although Robin was removed from the screenplay, the character's development was far enough that a young Marlon Wayans was cast in the role. Really? And costumes, sets, and even action figures were made. And in her interview, Wayne said that he still receives residual checks as part of his two-film contract that he signed. Good for him. And I could totally see Marlon Wayans playing Robin. That would have been amazing. Yep. Damn it. But then Schumacher bought out his contract and gave it to... Fucking... What's his name? Chris something or other? Yeah. Plain McPlain rap? I thought he was cute in he's, the Fried no, Green Tomatoes. He's cute. He was cute and everything. He's, what's the fuck is his name? Anyway, unremarkable. Yeah, I don't know. Marlon Wayans would have been a much better choice. So, um, Burgess Meredith, who oh. played the Penguin on Batman back uh-huh. in 1966 and in Batman, uh, the show, of course, and the movie, uh-huh. was asked to play uh, the Penguin's father in the opening of the film, but illness prevented him from it. And so Paul Rubens did a favor for Tim Burton, having done Pee Wee's Playhouse with him. and uh, Or not Playhouse, but Pee Wee's Big, Big Adventure. Adventure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, took over on short notice. And then, of course... More than two decades later, Paul Rubens would reprise the role as Oswald uh, Cobblepot's biological father in the TV series Gotham, 
which I did not know. I didn't know that either. I didn't watch Gotham. No. But that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this film was considered the breakout role for the renowned character actor Doug Jones, who played the role of the Thin Clown and even has a, has a couple of speaking lines, I think. Wasn't Doug Jones also in some episodes of Buffy? Uh, he might have played one of the silent yeah, guys from the gentleman. Episode, the gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he would would go on to play Pan in Pan's Labyrinth, and he mm-hmm. would go on to play the stupid fish thing in that one Oscar movie. <laughs> the love of water, or whatever the fuck it was. Or... I don't want to think about that movie. Guillermo del Toro's The Way of Water. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we did see Doug Jones at that fucking horror convention, though. We just didn't yeah, Doug Jones has been a lot. Yeah, he's yeah. amazing. Yeah, he's great. Okay, so. The Shape, shape of Water. The Shape of Water, that's what, it, that's what it is. Piece of shit. Yeah. So the scene of Catwoman putting a live bird in her mouth was real. <gasps> no CGI. Pfeiffer said that in retrospect, she would have not done the stunt because uh, she had not considered the risk of injury or disease involved. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Michelle, no, I appreciate that commitment, but please don't put a bird in your mouth. <laughs> Unless it's cooked. She said it wasn't going to look real enough flying out because they were going to pull it on a fucking string or whatever. Because <laughs> she put, she, she live bird shot of her claws going to it and grabbing it. And then it's a different shot of her putting it in her mouth, which is a puppet. Okay. Right. And so the shot, the separate shot of her opening her mouth after the penguin finishes line is the real bird that's flying out of her mouth. Did we talk about when we were, I mean, I'm sure that we did. We talked about Witches of Eastwick. We probably gushed all over Michelle Pfeiffer then too. Probably. I mean, because you and I both like her. Yes. In multiple movies. Sure. So, yeah. Call us, Michelle. Although I've never seen Grease 2. Fuck you. I know. I need to... All right. I will watch Avatar right after you watch Grease 2. <laughs> is that the one you want to... Is no. that the card you want to play? Or is No, I just want to watch Grease 2. <laughs> <laughs> I need a cool writer. <laughs> okay. So when asked during a 2007 talk show appearance if she had ever felt nostalgic and put the cat suit on to amuse her husband, David E. Kelly, sexist question, mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer stated that once filming was over, she never even wanted to see that costume <laughs> again for as long as she lived. I can totally imagine that. Yeah. So she said that her Catwoman costume was vacuum sealed once she was fitted in it for scenes. So she actually had only a short amount of time to perform before she would have to have it opened or she would become lightheaded and actually pass out. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. Her hearing was so impacted that she couldn't hear her own voice, and she had to be repeatedly told by Burton to lower her register because she would almost shout lines after immediately getting into costume. <laughs> I'm feeling yummier. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking vacuum sealed. Jesus. That's crazy. <laughs> Although I'm not surprised. Like people get put through hell for like costumes and makeup. Well, and Penguin shit had like to go that. through three to four hours of makeup every yes. day, you know. And of course, uh, Michael Keaton's in that suit by at the time still couldn't turn his neck. Nope. So he had to move his whole torso dramatically, you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was physical and I shouldn't have done it. Yeah. <laughs> so during her raid on the Shrek department store, Catwoman uses her whip to decapitate several mannequins and then playfully use her whip as a jump rope. Michelle Pfeiffer carried out the difficult stunt in one go on her first take. What? As soon as Burton called cut, the crew burst into spontaneous applause. The footage can be seen on YouTube. And we will link to this in our show notes. I want to see it. Oh my it's God. great. God. Okay. <laughs> see, I love her even more. It's just one of those lightning in a bottle moments, you know, like, uh, and I love that they waited to start applauding until after he yelled cut because there's a similar scene in alien resurrection that we talked about mm-hmm. where Sigourney made the, uh, basketball, the basketball uh, from 
you know, throwing it backwards from like all the way across set, mm-hmm. you know, and Ron Perlman was like, what or whatever. And so they like <laughs> had to cut early and remove the dialogue, uh, remove his noise, you know, his audio so that it would work. So he had kind of fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that fun fact. <laughs> yeah. So the final shot of the film in which Catwoman is seen looking at the bat signal was added as an afterthought only weeks before the film opened because audiences wanted a more positive, hopeful ending. The shot had to be filmed on a weekend less than a day before or after its conception with a double for Michelle Pfeiffer. And that single shot cost $250,000. And it is fucking weak. I hate that. That's my, my least favorite part in this movie. Really? Is when you see her silhouette, like looking up at the bat signal. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't look right. It doesn't even look like Catwoman to me. Really? Yeah. I don't like it. I hate it. I actively Mm. hate that part in this movie. Wow. So they waste. I kind of like the pan up showing the, the, the city going up and up and up and up. I mean, that part is okay, but I mean, some bad tracking and, you know, like the literal silhouette part. I just don't, I don't care for it. They didn't need to have that. Yeah. At all. They already show her body's missing or whatever, but the ending was already such a downer. And even with this ending, kids were crying apparently. (laughs) Well, and I don't, she had a, she had one life left. We know this. We know that she's alive. If you buy into the mythology, the subtle supernatural, which a lot of people would. She got shot and she survived. Like she is still alive. They don't even know if he hit her. We didn't see any blood or any holes. I mean, I don't, she, she, she clearly wasn't dead. You know what I mean? Like they didn't need to do all that. She could have been chunky salsa. I will fucking die on this hill. Okay. They, that ending is stupid. Okay. I think a lot of people probably agree with you. I hope so. <laughs> Listeners, let us know. Please. I feel very strongly about this. I loved it as a kid because I, I wanted to know that she was alive. I just thought she was alive anyway when I was a kid. I, I don't know. So, I don't know. I was like, yes, queen. <laughs> <laughs> so for my last fun fact, for a scene in Penguin's mayoral office... The monkey handlers positioned above and below managed the organ grinder monkey as it descended a set of stairs with a note for Penguin. But when it saw DeVito in full costume and makeup, it leapt at his testicles. (laughs) Oh my God. DeVito said, the monkey looked at me, froze, and then leapt right at my balls. Thank God it was padded costume. (laughs) This... It's fun for multiple reasons. Hey, that's funny. And I shouldn't be laughing at it because, well, thank God he was padded. The makeup frothed that monkey into a frenzy. <laughs> I am not going to scare a fucking monkey now. Because it's going to go straight for your balls. It's straight for my fucking nuts. <laughs> no, I like my nuts. I want to keep them. Keep Well, keep monkeys away from me in general. I feel like they problem solve and I'm in danger. Yeah. I'm in danger, girl. Those are fun. Those are really fun, actually. But we have some questions to ask about Batman Returns, like we do about every movie that we deep dive into here on the Film Flamers. And we're going to start with, is Batman Returns a horror movie? Mm, Adjacently. Adjacently, yes. I mean, I would say it's adjacently horror as well. There's a lot of horrific moments in There's definitely death and trauma and darkness and... Oh, yeah. There's trauma abound. And murders and dead hands and... And, yeah, (laughs) like corpsey moments. That black ooze that's coming out of fucking (laughs) Penguin's mouth and... I mean, it's, it's, it's very, there's lots of, lots of horror elements. There's people that talk about the stuff that's coming out of Penguin's mouth, especially when he's floating there and dead mm-hmm. that like traumatized kids, you know, that made it look too, too real or something. And that's the thing about Batman in general. I feel like Batman in general has a horror vibe about it Yeah, as a franchise, as whatever you want to call it, sure. right? a property, you know? And I feel like as these movies 
continue to come out, they become way more and more horrific, right? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of, you know, Schumacher got way less so. Like no, I, I mean, like now. Say, so like post-Schumacher. You know, in, in Nolan, I could say there's some horror adjacency Nolan here and sure. there, right? I mean, the Scarecrow for sure. But I would say the most horror adjacent of all of them almost, besides this one, is definitely the, the newest one. The Batman is definitely just a yeah. full-on horror movie. Uh, it would be this one. The Batman that just came out this year, and then the Mask of the the Phantasm actually has a lot of horror in it. I I, I still the Phantasm think character. I mean, I feel like Nolan's Batmans also have a lot of horror. I mean, I, I think of things like the Scarecrow. I think of Bane, right? You know, I mean, like they look like horror things. You know, certainly Scarecrow with the hallucinogenics in the first one. Yes, you know, uh, I, I would say the the second and third ones less so. For sure. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, but yes, I mean, again, obviously another volume conversation about horror adjacency and Batman movies for sure, which, you know, even the, the least of them has some. Yeah. I would say that out of all comic book properties, I feel like Batman is the most horrific, right? Maybe Dr. Strange is right up. There. Yeah. Dr. Strange could have some, you yeah. know, if they do Ghost Rider, that could have some. Ghost Rider, know? definitely. I mean, like, there's there. There are some like Venn diagrams in there. I just really feel like Batman itself is like violent and scary. Yeah. And, and it should be. That's what I think of when I think of Batman. So yeah. were you scared while watching Batman Returns? Uh, maybe as a kid, a little bit with some of that Penguin stuff, um, but probably not really. It did, probably didn't occur to me to be scared because I was still on the high from seeing Catwoman. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I was scared as a kid. I certainly was probably grossed out. Yeah. You know? But you're right. I mean, like, Catwoman kept me from being completely grossed out and scared because she was amazing. Mm. <clears throat> out of five stars, what would you rate Batman Returns? Normally, you know, as a kid, I would have rated it a five out of fucking five stars. Uh-huh. And it's just, like, continuously kind of deflated in my rating scale over the past, like, 30-something years or whatever it's been. Uh, 30 years, actually, this year. Shit. Oh, my God. It's another anniversary. <laughs> Jesus. Well, we missed it back in June. But yeah, no, it's. I yeah, guess so. Uh, 30 fucking years. I'm kind of Jesus surprised Christ. that they come out more closer to Christmas time. So uh, I, I would say now, I think the last time I rated it was a three and a half. So, yeah. After that's we, the lowest I've ever rated it, you know. And I'm, I'm thinking of it even now, as we've talked about it, much more fondly than I think I even watched it at the time. But normally, this would be like a four star movie for me. So after we watched it the last time, I originally gave it three and a half. And um, as I thought about it more and um, really thought about it the days afterward, I was just like, no, that's unfair for this movie. This movie is really, really good. It's fun. I like the dark aspects of it. I like the burdenness of it. I really, really enjoy Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. So, I mean, I will give this movie four stars. This is a four star movie. I think, yeah, I think the content's all there. You know, the performances are all there. The, you know, all of the, the style is there. This lacking a little bit in substance. Uh, a lot of the scenes, it seems a little overstuffed. It seems a little staccato. Yeah. Okay. To me, like I was, that didn't, I didn't mind that as a kid because it, my, you know, the pace of it was much more cartoonish, you know, and compared to watching it now as an adult, you know, having seen things like the Batman and the Nolan movies and, and what's possible and stuff. It's like if, if, if Burton was able to have a longer runtime, you know, and give these characters a little bit more breathing room and a little bit more things to do, you know, I almost feel like this movie would have played better almost as a miniseries, like what, like what we'd get now on Amazon or Netflix or something. I can totally see that. You know, so I feel feel like the, the problem it has is kind of a, like a systemic issue. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I have it at a three and a half. I might over time raise that again to a four. 
And I really feel like, like in some instances, these characters have some breathing room. Like one of the things that I found the most remarkable watching it on this last rewatch is the fact that Batman, like we said earlier, is not in the movie really for the first like third. Of it, it almost needs to be called Gotham Returns. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so like we, we are given a big chunk of time devoted to our villains right and i think that's amazing like you really get to know who these villains are why they're villains i mean everything is explained before the action starts happening and you just don't see that very often sometimes in these kind of like actiony temple yeah. movies right i almost want to say like they, they created this like lex luther character with max shrek for bruce wayne that could have stuck around and then we could have gotten like maybe a back-to-back sequel of Penguin's story where his story isn't as rushed and has a little more breathing room. It's certainly one for Catwoman. Oh, definitely. Where it's mostly about her, you know, versus all kind of stuffed into this like hour and a half package, you know, that could have easily been like three hours of content. I mean, for real, they should have just made another fucking Catwoman movie right after this instead of waiting all those years and then giving us the Halle Berry piece of crap. God. I'd almost still like to see, um, you know, some version of that, like um, the new person that's leading DC mm-hmm. uh, is the same guy, uh, James Gunn, I guess, that, that did Guardians of the Galaxy in the new Suicide Squad movie that you still need to see. Very gorgeous and very right. good. You'd love it. Um, very dark and funny. I like dark and, and funny. Very violent. And um, and his version called, I think, The Suicide Squad versus Suicide Squad mm-hmm. is really good. And so he's leading the DC universe. And they, he just announced that they're cutting Wonder Woman 3. They're recasting and canceling Aquaman. <laughs> they're doing, they're burning everything to the ground yeah. and kind of starting over and including, I think in the new shared universe that they want to do Matt Reeves version of Batman, okay. you know, building off of that and building this new universe around that, I think. And one of the things that he shared is a story called kingdom come that he's teased. And if he wants to do that, that is the, this is the 30 years later aftermath of the DC universe where, you know, Superman and wonder woman are together as kind of a couple, you know, and they're older and Batman is like 60, 70 years old or something. Uh, but then you also have like Catwoman that's, you know, that age and stuff like that. And so we have people that we could get back like Michael Keaton and, and Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer and we could have some of the older, you know, and so it'd be interesting to have that movie because it's a really good story and very dark. Okay. Um, I'm on board with that. You know, a lot of death and, and stuff caused by <clears throat> the superheroes and stuff. So. I mean, I like my shit grounded in realism. So I'm in and real real life is dark yeah and i'd love to see those actors come back and it would be a real cool effort for people in their 50s 60s and 70s that is led like like that that you wouldn't really necessarily see in a superhero movie i'm down for it so i'd love to see him do that but that leads us to our next question then so finally and some would say most importantly who's the hottest guy in batman returns Is it Chip? <laughs> His son? Yeah. Come on, it's fucking Mike Keaton, man. You don't think so? I think Mike Keaton's dreamy. I still think he's kind of dreamy. Such an everyday guy, you know? I'm okay with that. I like him better. He's actually cuter to me the older he got. Yeah, I mean, he's... got more character, you know? He's he's just cute. He's handsome. He's a handsome man. I guess. And I think he's funny. Like in his his comedic work, he makes me laugh a lot. Right. I just really find him to be a very attractive man. I just thought it was funny because I was watching this and I was like, in the real world, Michelle Pfeiffer would never be with a guy like that. And then I find out <laughs> she was when in my research, but literally she was, and that's why she wasn't cast in the first movie. Oh my god, because they was boning. 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of slim pickings in this. A lot of people have on heavy makeup and things like that. So, but like, I think I really feel like Michael Keaton is a very attractive man. I always have, and I always will. So, yeah. to each his own. Yeah. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Batman Returns, and I think we had a lot to say about it, right? So, oh yeah, we did. This is a long episode. It's a very long episode, and as always. We want to know what you think about this movie and our conversation about it. So head over to social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, at the Film Flamers, and let us know what you think. Also, let us know what other Batman movies you'd like us to cover, if any. Like, do you want us to cover the first Batman? Do you want us to cover the new 2022 Batman? What are your favorites? What do you have the nostalgia bonus for? Or do you have any interest at all? We would probably not mind eventually circling back to Batman at some point. That's right. I would love to talk about The Dark Knight. I would love to talk about The Batman. Like, for sure. I feel like those movies are really, really good. But like Robert said, you can reach us on all the socials or you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. My Vichy is served best hot. <laughs> I've already said this too many times, but oh, I'm feeling much yummier. How could you? I'm a woman. <laughs> I'm Catwoman. Oh, this is so hard. <laughs> Semi hard. <laughs> the fucking dialogue in this movie. Yes, call our hotline though, for real. At least your nose isn't gushing blood. <laughs> Oh, sweet Jesus. <clears throat> um, all the rates and reviews on Apple Podcasts or iTunes really help us. And now ratings on Spotify, apparently. And ratings on Spotify. So head over to either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. If you're able to write something, write it, and we're going to read it on the next Shooting the Flames. Stay tuned next week for The Nightmare Before Christmas. Another Tim Burton classic. And over on Patreon, I think... We're going to do that Black Christmas movie in like 2006 or something. Yeah, it's trashy fun. I'm looking forward to watching it and talking about it. So yes, he's right. Head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers to find all of our bonus content, including that Black Christmas episode that is forthcoming and join the family over there. All right, Chris, let's go off and start that hot time in this cold town tonight with some vicious or some vicious <laughs> and have some... Sweet, Sweet dreams. dreams. I was going to say yummy dreams, but one has just sprung to mind. <laughs> Your dirty limerick. Or something. <laughs> I do fucking love this movie. <laughs>